It is that time again. Welcome to the coolest podcast for movie talk. On the Legit Cool Podcast, we are continuing with the Legacy Series, where we focus on one director and review every single film they have directed in chronological order of release. Returning back to the cast is the coolest movie pro talker, Nathan Sammy. G'day, River. How are you today, brother? I am doing well. You're doing well? That's good. Pretty swamped, you know, the amount of the amount of podcasting we'll be doing lately. Well, I gotta um, say, it's not just the podcasting, I think... It doubles with how long Nolan movies are. <laughs> dude, dude, uh, doing this, you know, it always seems like a great idea when you think, oh yeah, let's let's do a let's do a long series about Nolan films, and we're not even like, oh, we're almost halfway through the Christopher Nolan series, but his movies, we're just reminded, or at least I'm reminded how dense his movies are yeah it works it's more like i'm not fatigued watching them i'm just definitely a more ponderous person afterwards <laughs> i feel like i um yeah i also come out of a lot of his films generally quite sad <laughs> and, and a little mm. bit down um that that's okay though i think like the one the ones which brought me a bit more hope were batman begins um, and I'm looking forward to maybe Interstellar for that, but you know, is it maybe, Interstellar? Yeah, there's hope in Interstellar. It's the whole, it's the whole done point. I actually I can't even remember the ending of Interstellar. <laughs> we'll we'll, uh, we'll be reminded uh, at the end of that three hour behemoth. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You're right. You know, being reminded of how dense his films are, they're they're just very exhausting as well. They are, exhausting. and it's not it's not like it's a bad thing. It's um, you always have to kind of. You have to have a sense of mental preparation for Christopher Nolan films because, like, even if you're rewatching it, you know, in this case, we are, we're rewatching everything so that we are nice and prepared for recapping and reviewing for these for this very purpose. But, like, even still, I have to kind of I have to find some kind of sense of mental energy to, to try and watch these films because you still have to pay extra attention because you don't want to miss a detail. Um, well, and even with that, you find on rewatches find new details. But then, it, even more uh, exciting about having to come into a movie that you have to work hard on is that you are rewarded for that hard work. Um, but yeah, at the same time, like I um, jumped ahead a little bit. People might have seen on the gram, but I um, I was feeling like I needed a blockbuster relax. <laughs> so I watched Inception because I just needed something where. Even if I wanted to like switch on, I, I could, but I also could just switch off. Uh, and so I did that a little bit on, on my Inception watch, but uh, mm. I don't think that'll, um, yeah, that, that, that doesn't uh, cheapen that movie at all. <laughs> mm. You gave me an idea as well when you did that. Um, I actually wanted to try and watch an action film, so I watched half of Casino Royale, but hey. that doesn't really count. <laughs> <laughs> Watching just half of it. Uh, and... Of course, everybody knows my name is Rivervilli and I am the resident host of Legit Cool Podcast where we analyze, critique, recap and review films to which we draw our own conclusions but at the very end of the episode, give our personal rating. In this run of the Legacy series, we are focused on Christopher Nolan, if you haven't already picked that up, and the magnificent films he has created over the years. If you haven't already checked out our last three episodes on Memento, Insomnia, and Batman Begins, I recommend you check those out first before listening to this one. Which brings us to his fourth film in the lineup, The Prestige. 
<laughs> take a big, big deep breath. <laughs> this is kind of what we need. Are you looking? Oh no! Are you I'm watching, watching closely? closely? <laughs> Damn! I messed that up. Are you looking closely? <laughs> Are you watching closely? What a way to open up a film. Mm. It's like you know when I first watched this movie, and like I always have these kind of vivid moments of remembering Christopher Nolan films from when I first watched them. You know, this one came out in 2006, only one year after his previous film, Batman Begins. Mm. And and the moment it opens up and it says, are you watching closely? I always, like, I remember my first reaction was like, oh, bloody hell, freaking Christopher Nolan and his films. So he's going to throw you in the deep end, try and make you swim for as long as you can until you start drowning halfway through the film. Mm. And, um, to, well, you know, to kick it off with uh, Michael Caine's voice as well. Whew. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. What a guy. He <laughs> is a bit of a guy. So, yes, this is the first film. Oh, sorry, the fourth film in the lineup um, that we are doing in this review and recap legacy series. The Prestige was released on 20th of October 2006 and a budget of $40 million and a box office of $104 million worldwide. The Prestige was nominated for Best Achievement in Cinematography who is the who is Wally Fister, his regular DOP for the vast majority of his films, and Best Achievement in Art Direction at the 2007 Academy Awards. But only won one award at the Empire Awards, Mag- Empire Magazine Awards, I should say, for Best Director in 2007. How appalling is that? Yeah. For the Academy Award, or, you know, the Oscar, the most prestigious, you know, no pun intended, <laughs> the most prestigious award ceremony, they nominate... Only the the cinematography and the cinematography is great in the film, but the biggest, like the the, the most amazing thing about the film is actually the story itself well, it's and the direction. But, and again, this is like you know, there's there's Oscar baitiness in um, in our in our cinema, and there's also um, a lack of appreciation for art until um, it stands the test of time. And I I do wonder what um what we won that year in two thousand and six that we do not ever talk about. But we're here <laughs> in 2022 talking about the prestige uh, over a decade later, which is just phenomenal. <laughs> that's that's the mark of a lot of. Uh, well, I guess that's the Nolan reputation is that everybody is always talking about his films. Mm. That's what he sets out to achieve every time he makes a film. Mm. You know, he he says that in one of the interviews. I think it was on maybe Inception when everybody was blown away by that film. They were asking him the question. How is it that you come up with these grandiose ideas and concepts and manage to pull them off for the most part? Like, like what is your thought process in making films like these? And he, and he says that um, when he thinks about his childhood and going to see the first Star Wars movie at the cinema, he said that was an experience that blew his mind. So that kind of planted an idea, I don't want to like turn this into a pun for Inception, but you know, it's, it, it literally plotted an idea that grew over time that he wanted to make films that were going to be a memorable experience every time someone goes to the cinema. Mm. So you're never going to see Nolan make rom-coms. You're never going to see him, not, not that there's anything rom-coms. I'm, I'm not trying to um, imply that rom-coms is not memorable films, but you know, he's talking about epic sagas like, the Star Wars saga that really had an impression on him growing up as a young filmmaker. For sure. But oh, and also, like, uh, one one line that uh, comes back with Nolan is the idea of concept and how core concepts are to 
his, uh, yeah, what, what he wants to put out into the world. And it's funny because with this, uh, at, at, at this point in his career, um, we haven't really seen as much of science fiction. And I think it's funny when you think of the prestige, I often think it's the odd one out because it's a bit of a period piece too. Whereas a lot of his films are set in the present or in whatever present he's filming in. But this is the start in many ways of what he starts to play with around science fiction, which uh, aside from the concepts of Memento, the concepts of Insomnia, the concepts of Batman, these films are quite linear and they follow uh, very grounded worlds. It's the filming that's unique. Whereas mm. in this film, the filming is unique, uh, but there's something else at play. And I, I think that's something that we'll start to see moving forward from this film in Nolan's uh, arsenal. Yeah, man. I, I'm looking forward to recapping The Prestige. So. <laughs> um, <clears throat> it's going to be pretty exciting. So, you know, The Prestige is actually an adaptation of a novel from Christopher, from a guy called Christopher Priest, which came out in 995. And um, I'm actually kind of surprised by that because I, I actually thought The Prestige, when I was doing research for this, you know, I was quite surprised that it is an adaptation of a novel. Although what Nolan does in this film is he, he breaks a lot of rules that the book is about apparently. So I didn't actually dive in to what were the real differences between the book and the film. Mm. But an example would be that the character – um, this might be a little bit of a spoiler, but you know, the character that Christian Bale plays, which is actually two characters that end up being the brothers, right? The twins. That's actually not in the book. Wow. So I, I think. Oh, that'd be good to read. Yeah, it'd be good to read. Yeah. Well, actually, <laughs> <What's> that <laughs> trick? <laughs> but the thing is like, like when I read that, I was like, oh, I, I guess the book is probably not going to be as exciting because yeah. we now have a standard of what the prestige is from the film, yeah. even though it's not it's not the original, you know, it, it's a success, not a success, but you know, it's adaptation from something else. Well, and it, again, it's um, Nolan's flair for the, uh, the theatrical, <laughs> <laughs> which uh, I think, I think again, always lends him to one up uh, his, his creations and even those that inspire him. Because I feel like that might be the same if we go back and watch the, uh, the, the original insomnia uh, or any of the Batmans before the Batman begins. <laughs> <laughs> that we we find him uh, really in that stage of one-upmanship. True, and uh, and so far, following his Batman trilogy, we have yet to be uh, he's yet to be one-upped. <laughs> mm, we have to wait and see on May third. I think Ooh. it is May third. Yeah. So with a runtime of two hours and ten minutes and a Rotten Tomatoes score of seventy-six from the critics and ninety-two from the audience. Disappointing critics say, how dare you give us 76%. The Prestige is about an illusion gone horribly wrong. Oh, sorry. (laughs) I was like trying to swallow my bread there. It's about an illusion gone horribly wrong. Pits two 19th century magicians, Alfred Borden and Robert Angier, against each other in a bitter battle for supremacy. Terrible consequences loom when the pair escalate their feud each seeking not just outwit, but to destroy the other man. And just like a great magic trick, the prestige requires you to watch closely. The film is packed with sleight-of-hand tricks, complicated science, and mistaken identities that combine to create a masterful movie wrapped up in a harrowing finale. The prestige. The prestige. What are your 
what are your spoiler free uh-huh. <laughs> if you can do you know we'll, we'll try and keep it nice and tight yep. you know maybe give us like about a two minute or maybe less than two minutes of your spoiler free impressions of the prestige yeah for sure i'll start with i think this is his best film uh <laughs> like i yeah Love even it. even having it. moved forward and even considering the dark knight which we'll get to i think this is a really perfect film uh, in terms of um, everything that this film does is for the story that it wishes to tell. And I think that the prestige with a concept around magicians has to land every element of its story in a way which allows the audience to feel that they are watching a phenomenal show of magic. Uh, and and I think this, this movie just allows you to enter into that story. It gives you the right beats, the right energy, uh, the right sense of, of story progression, even while Nolan is jumping around several different timelines, several different stories, and at the same time hiding truths from you. Uh, so that when you get to the final reveals at the end of this film, and I say reveals because this three, if not four, <laughs> there's four. I'm going to say I lost count. I lost yeah. count. I'll, I'll name the four later on, but I, 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 I think there's been no film that has given me that sense of cathartic relief and consistent, consistent. Um, yeah. Consistently thought provoking, like ideas following, uh, than this film. I, it's just brilliant. And, Alongside that, all the actors in this movie kill it. And um, Jackman and Bale just are, they're just such perfect energy. They're both uh, protagonists in so many ways for this story. And I think that that just really uh, lends itself to uh, these two. I think in my little uh, Instagram whilst watching this, I, I, pe- I pitted it as Batman versus Wolverine. And um, you have the energy <laughs> of uh, two of the greatest superhero actors of the age, you know, coming together. So That's great. Eh? Yeah, it's so good. What movie can you find with great performances like that where it's um, the alter ego of uh, Wolverine and Batman? <laughs> uh, uh, honestly, that, that's, that's the easiest pitch. If you had, hadn't seen this movie and uh, you hadn't already been spoiled, by us earlier like that's the pitch is go and watch this movie because it's batman versus wolverine except they're magicians this is like the batman and and wolverine origin story that we want though <laughs> i want to see a like uh, alternate reality version well you just need to send uh, batman into the past and wolverine's already there and you're done you know like <laughs> not too tricky not too tricky <laughs> at all <laughs> yeah yourself uh oh. Where do I start? I mean, I think you just took all the words out of my mouth, maybe. I don't know. But <laughs> um, this movie is definitely the greatest magic trick ever performed. Um, the movie is split up in, you know, your traditional three-act structure. And it's kind of, the whole movie is is a, uh, a magic trick. You know, the way that Michael Caine explains it in the beginning um, when you have three parts to the magic trick, you have the pledge, the turn, and then the prestige. That's practically what you get throughout this whole movie. And I think what this movie does so well is, like what you're saying, it manages to tell the story that it tends to tell. And it does it 
all in the runtime without wasting one second. Mm. Like literally, I, I don't think rewatching this movie, I don't think I ever found a moment where I'm like, yeah, that's not necessary. Like it's such a tight film. I don't think I've ever seen a film this narratively tight. Now I, I probably don't share the same opinion with you being the best Christopher Nolan film, but I can totally like, you know, it, it, if it was down to like um, a battle between who should actually, who should have the authority to say, this is the greatest film that Nolan's ever made. I, I probably wouldn't argue with you too much, you know, <laughs> because, because the movie is, is very, very good. And, and I, I just have like special reservations for another Nolan film, which we won't mention. That is my favorite out of all of them, <clears throat> The Dark Knight. <clears throat> um, but but it's uh, that is really just because I favoritize a lot of things that happen in The Dark Knight, yeah. and that's not necessarily to say that there were filming aspects and narrative aspects that were better than the prestige it's more just a, a case of preference right mm. as opposed to sort of objectively looking at it because to be honest it, objectively looking at this film in terms of storytelling it probably is a better film than the dark knight in terms of narrative storytelling yeah because man like it's i i cannot pick this movie apart in terms of its narrative scope so love the movie Highly recommend. I mean, I highly recommend every single Nolan film, <laughs> but but this is, this movie blows my mind in terms of how you tell a great story of two characters that have probably some of the best character development uh, I've probably ever seen in a film. Um, and you know what better actors to use other than Hugh Jackman and um, Christian Bale? Yeah. Performances are so powerful. All the uh, the supporting cast, they're all really good too. I mean, Scarlett Johansson's great in this. Um, Michael Caine. Michael Caine. Kill I mean, me. I was saying this in the in the previous podcast with Ben McGinn's, like, you know, you can give Michael Caine a shit line and he'll still deliver it really oh, well. <laughs> always. And I was uh, just whilst watching uh, The Dark Knight uh, yesterday, even as he has this little quip with Harvey Dent and he just... It just lands it so well, and oh. just rewatch Dark Knight. You'll get you'll get that quip, and it's just just the perfect English butler. Perfect, perfect. And here it's no no um, you know, wonder he's this mentor ingenue for uh, these two young rival magicians, and he's caught right in the middle of their of their conflict. Mm. Um, mm. And it's just yeah, it's that such a great performance. Uh, I think this again. Yeah. Ah, we'll, we'll, we'll get. We'll, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. Uh, let's before we jump into the recap. You know, just for those of you who haven't listened to our podcast before, or any of the episodes, even if you have listened to, listened to some episodes of the podcast, except for the Legacy series. In the Legacy series, we are recapping the entire film from beginning to end we break it up into three parts that is act one two and three then well, we the go pledge to the turn and the prestige. oh yeah yeah exactly <laughs> the pledge the turn of the prestige um we we break it up into that part and it's obviously all spoiler heavy so if you haven't seen the film already make sure you check out the film before coming to this or continuing this cast twice you need to watch this film twice <laughs> no dude you need to watch this film like 10 times, ten times but um <laughs> Nozomis and at minimum watch it twice because the second time your veil the veil will be lifted um <laughs> and i think it's not as satisfying if you've watched it once and listened to this that's true i think yeah. you might have you it's nicer to learn those things yourself on a rewatch 
yeah. than to have us just tell you all about it. That's true. That's actually a really good point. <laughs> a very, very valid point. Um, so we're going to get cracking right into it. But before we get into that, I just want to mention this first uh, this first piece of monologue from Michael Caine himself, who plays a character called Cutter. Is it Cutter or Cutler? Cutter. Cutter. Yeah, he plays a character called Cutter. And he's not a butler this time. But I think this uh, this monologue, which is the opening scene, is the perfect way to get into the recap. So uh, so this is the quote from uh, Cutter himself. Every great trick consists of three parts or acts. The first act is called the pledge. Why am I trying to do it in an English accent? <laughs> do your best. <laughs> Just, uh, uh, the Kiwi accent. I don't know. It's, it's, it's my acting, my act, my inner acting skills that are just coming out of here. I don't know what's going on. Um, the magician shows you something ordinary, a deck of cards, a bird or a man. He shows you this object. Perhaps he asks you to inspect it to see if it is indeed real, unaltered, normal. But of course, it probably isn't. The second act is called the turn. The magician takes the ordinary something and makes it do something extraordinary. Now you're looking for the secret, but you won't find it because, of course, you're not really looking. You don't really want to know. You want to be fooled, but you wouldn't clap yet because making something disappear isn't enough. You have to bring it back. That's why every magic trick has a third act. The hardest part, the part that we call the prestige Oh man, I got chills just reading that. <laughs> what a great piece of opening monologue! You know, at this point, what are you thinking this movie is going to be about? Because you know, of course, everybody knows it's about two magicians, and there's some kind of feud, a rivalry between the two magicians. But just from this monologue, after rewatching it recently, what are your thoughts going through? Oh man, I I think every um, <laughs> uh, again the lens of. Uh, yeah, the, the surprises of this film having been lifted. I think every time I hear this monologue, uh, I, I get an excitement about a journey that's about to uh, move forward. I watch a lot of magic tri- tricks on YouTube. <laughs> and I feel Do like you really? I, yeah, I feel Who's like your favorite doing, magician? Well, so I watch a lot of Penn and Teller Fool Us. Okay, Have you ever right. watched that? Uh, is that the Netflix one? No, so it's on, yeah. oh, you can watch most of it on YouTube. I'm not sure if it is on Netflix, but uh, basically Penn and Teller, two phenomenal uh, American magicians. Classic, the classics. Very much, yeah, like they're on The Simpsons, you know, uh, and uh, traditionally one Trump of them Simpsons. never speaks, uh, but they do some phenomenal, phenomenal magic. Uh, you should watch, um, I think it's, is it Teller's the one that doesn't speak? You should watch Teller's no idea. Uh, Fish and coin trick. If you okay. yeah, if you want to get an idea for what magic can be like and what magic is happening these days, watch yeah, watch his uh, fish and coin trick, and you'll be very uh, very astounded. But the show is a whole bunch of magicians hopping on the show. They perform it in Las Vegas, and they have to present a trick to the audience with Penn and Teller there. So specifically to Penn and Teller, they need to fool them, as in show them a trick that they cannot figure out how to do. And it is amazing. And I get very excited about that. And in this movie, watching The Prestige, I get very excited knowing that there is a, I'm about to be inducted into, I guess, the magician's code. Very much like Job in Arrested Development. Um, being pulled in, <laughs> pulled into uh, a world that I do not understand and being given uh, an opportunity to go backstage. And I think that's what I, I really love about this film every time is 
Uh, there's and and this is something that is a bit Nolan-y. Uh, there is a sense of what it means to be a producer, uh, a showman, uh, a storyteller, and to captivate people. And I think that's something that Nolan takes with all of his films. And I think they become analogs for his own filmmaking. Yeah, so, yeah. God damn, that's a that's a really good way of putting that whole like <laughs> that's a really good way of interpreting that whole monologue actually. But um, yeah, you know, for me that monologue. It, it makes you, and this is what Nolan constantly does, you know, he throws you in the deep end, right? No context, really. Mm. But I guess this is probably one of his very few films that you get some kind of context mm. because because Kane is explaining line for line what the magician's whole system is, right? What the whole structure of a magician goes through. And this is clearly like the foreshadowing of the entire film because by the end of the film, we get the prestige yeah and you know it's not over till the prestige till the prestige and i actually didn't even think about that like going into this film the the first time i saw this film was the opening weekend 2006 yeah Yeah. and i didn't think that and like even at the end of the film thinking ah i guess we weren't going to get the prestige until the end (laughs) that's like really damn clever (laughs) it is so damn well the the beginning dialogue or monologue by Michael Caine is the end monologue. Of it the is the end monologue. Well. Of the, yeah. And, yeah. um, and that the last frame of the film is that sense of, you have to feel like you've been tricked. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, it is crazy. So let's get into act one. Um, so in act one, we are sort of in the 1890s London, Robert Angier and, Alfred Borden works as shills for a magician under the mentorship of John Cutter, an engineer who designs stage magic. During a water tank trick, Angier's wife, Julia, fails to escape and drowns. Angier, devastated, blames Borden for using a riskier knot, causing her death. When Angier asks Borden which knot he used, Borden claims not to know. The two become bitter enemies and rivals. So this sets up obviously their um their whole feud and stuff it's it's kind of it's not the main kicker for what creates this crazy extreme revenge on each other mm. but it's it's a seed large enough for them to be um at odds with each other mm. um but you know also before this part we actually get a glimpse of what the end is mm. and this is kind of a smart way the, the classic smartness of nolan himself he throws some random shit at you and you're like, what the hell is that? Like, you know, it seemingly we see Hugh Jackman dead or dying in a glimpse, you know, just before, is it just after the monologue? So after the monologue, you come to, uh, the end of, uh, uh, Angie's career with his last ever performance and Borden, watching the performance and then going backstage and finding him just as he drowns. Yeah. And um, that's how the film begins with Borden's trial and him explaining what happened. That's right. And then you get Cutter explaining why is that significant? Why is the water? Oh yeah, that's right. So you have all of this, this sense of their rivalry is at its bitter end. Everything's gone to shit and Borden's on trial for a murder. And then you have Cutter as a witness explaining how significant that yeah. this this moment is. And then we go back and that's where we start to follow their stories as young men. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, it's it's such a and that's when the Nolanism, Nolanism start to kick in is the out of context imagery and the out of context trial. You're kind of like, okay, what is he on trial for? Because because even when we see that trial, we actually don't really know what he what he's on trial for, right? Because mm, no. they, they don't explicitly say until. I think it's like halfway through the film that we find out that he's actually on trial for the murder of Avengers. Of Avengers. Yeah. That's one of the big reveals too, right? Of the film. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, we have that devastating death of um, Julia. Julia. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> in so many ways, Julia is like a character that is pretty disposable. <laughs> because she, we, Let's we talk about a Nolanism, which is Nolan's <laughs> disposability of women uh, specifically. <laughs> he disposes of women in his films. And it, that, True. that's one of the things I, uh, I always find. And I think we should find tough is that I don't, I think he's the place with which he comes from. I always wonder how, um, what's it, what's your relationship with women? Uh, Christopher Nolan? Yeah. Well, like, <laughs> Oh yeah. That's, Watch his films, guys. As you watch more and more of them, you might notice that there are a lot of women that die in his films. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that um, is true. Oh my gosh, yeah, I'm thinking about all the women now that will die. Um, Dark Knight. The Dark Knight. Yeah. Jeez. Spoiler alert for the Dark Knight. <laughs> um, but you know his his wife Emma Thomas. She's a big producer. She mm. also writes in some of these films too. Mm. So it's always kind of a wonder um, if you want to sort of dive deep into his. Um, his thought process of disposable characters. But, you know, coming back to this character, Julia, is that we don't get any background of her being in a relationship with Angiers, Robert Angiers. And so um, that relationship in, a, in and of itself doesn't really mean anything at this point. And even throughout the film, the relationship still doesn't mean anything. But it, it means something in the sense of trying to tell how the story is going to spiral into the worst case, like of revenge. There's, well, there's, there's, um, there's a couple of things that shadow her throughout the film. So yes, the, the, uh, the, yeah, <laughs> he dies in the same way she dies, which is true. Interesting. Yeah. But also his, um, his want for revenge over her death starts to drive him more than anything else. And there's a bit which he has with Scarlett Johansson where she says, what would your wife think? And he says, I don't care about my wife. I care about his secrets. Uh, and and that that's a moment where he kind of has a bit of a reality check, yet he still cannot help but give in with his obsession, uh, which is something that many people warn him about, including Tesla, which uh, we'll get to. <laughs> But um, I, I find Julia is a fascinating little character because she also gives him his name, the great Danton. And he oh, doesn't. Yeah, she does. And him, um, yeah. he, he, he wants to keep it after she passes, even though they right. say, oh, it's a bit, you know, it's a bit old time. And we also don't get much of a background of where that name comes from, though, eh? The great, great Danton. Danton. No, but. Uh, do, do they kind of hint at, like. There's a few things that they hint at about Angiers, which I hadn't properly ever noticed. And I'd always found it odd and jarring when I'd watched this film in the past. Right. It was answered in this one and it had a nice cathartic release to it. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's interesting too. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. You got to elaborate on that one. Mm-hmm. Cause I'm a little bit, um, question mark on that whole Dante, D- Dante, Don. Oh, the great Danton. The great Danton. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so Angier and Borden launched their own magic careers after this whole incident with Angier working with Cutter and Borden with a mysterious felon. Okay. So one thing I want to 
one thing I want to say before we actually get more into the act one is that I dude, I, I, I wasn't falling for that character being like not being Christian, significant Christian Bale. Oh, really? Oh, really? He looked like Christian Bale to me. Yeah. I was like, the first time I saw the movie, that was the first thing I thought about. I was like, why does this guy look like, look like Christian Bale? <laughs> like just like a fatter version or yeah. with like some makeup. Am I the only one that notices? That? I, I mean, did you yeah, notice that? No. So I, um, <laughs> for a long while I didn't. And I think part of it was the filming and there's a lot of okay. intentionality around his framing of scenes. That, yeah, of course. Like, there's a lot of like him looking away. To always disappear into the background. Yeah. Um, so you never want to feel like he has significance. And, and I think um, Noel's really intentional about that, that. That's the greatest secret. But he is so secondary. You never really hear Fallon speak more than one or two lines yeah. ever. Yeah. And. Um, but the thing is, we do. Yeah, we do. <laughs> we just don't know. But um, yeah. But uh, there's those there's those other things like the cotton buds and the um, and the belly. Yeah. Um, that ch- make his cheeks look chubbier yeah. and. Um, yeah, I think there's something fascinating about the glint in his eye that seems to be gone. Like Christian Bale's always got a glint in his eye, and I feel like he makes that character look very dead inside. And right. I, right. I always found that fascinating. So yeah, yeah. I was really blown away. Actually, um, yeah, I was completely dumbfounded the first time I watched man I, I feel so gutted about my first experience because I was like yeah I knew it was him <laughs> at the end of the film because I could see that it's Christian Bale and I was I was kind you of it for yourself yeah I, your sharp I was, eyes. <laughs> <laughs> my observation skills is just through the roof I suppose but I was confused because I was like is, is Nolan intentionally trying to make it obvious that it's Christian Bale or Am I just picking up on something that nobody's picking up on in an obvious way? And sure enough, it's the latter. Because I, I asked like my mates when we looked at the film, I was like, "Did you not? Could you not tell that it was Christian Bell the whole time?" They're like, "No, nah, man." I was like, "What?" <laughs> I think, <laughs> that was so obvious to me. Again, this is and and I think you want to always be playing into what the film's uh, concept is, which is around magicians and the mystery. Yeah. And so I think the film gives you so many balls to juggle. Sure. That. Uh, and, and, and as I made notes about this film, everything had significance to some element of the story, uh, including all of the tricks. Like each of the tricks have, um, a moment of success, a moment of sabotage and a moment where they are elevated or, um, come back in a, a way which foreshadows, uh, something about the characters. So, uh, the water tank's one of them, but the yeah. trick, uh, I think is the most significant, but we'll get back to okay. that. Okay. Um, okay. And... And even the bullet catch too. Uh, but those uh, moments, I think, are always there to help you move away from what is underlying, which is that this is his secret. This is their yeah. secret. Yeah. This is the border. Yeah. Damn, man. I, it was like and, the know. worst kept secret to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I still, obviously, it didn't take the quality away from the film whatsoever. It was still really amazing. But uh, yeah, I, I, was, I was gutted that I wasn't, surprised like everybody else because everyone was like oh my god it was his twin <laughs> and i was like i knew that from the beginning anyway i digress um so we uh so where are we at yeah so we <clears throat> uh Andrew and borden, borden launched their own magic careers with Andrew working with Carter and borden with the mysterious felon and just sabotages one of Borden's fame uh, performances when he slips a real bullet into Borden's pistol during a bullet catch trick. 
resulting in Borden losing two of his fingers. Hmm. <laughs> Borden reciprocates by sabotaging NGA's disappearing bird act, killing the bird on stage and injuring a volunteer from the audience. Um, Borden develops a trick he calls the transported man, in which he appears to travel instantly between two wardrobes on opposite ends of the stage. Unable to discern Borden's method, Angier hires a double, Gerald Root, to perform his own version of the trick. The imitation is a greater success, but Angier is dissatisfied as he needs the trick to uh, he needs the trick hidden under the stage while Root backs in the applause. Root threatens to blackmail Angier and Cutter after being approached by Borden. So, you know, there's quite a lot of things happening in this whole uh, build-up process of, you know, how how is this brewing to an eventual, um, you know, uh, revenge case so much to the point that they're willing to make the most extreme sacrifices possible, you know, um, and uh, there's there's a lot that I want to try and unfold in this first act, especially with the back and forth um, non-linear slash jumping to linear, jumping back to non-linear, and then and then also the different timelines. I, I sort of picked up about I think four different timelines. I'm not sure, sure if you picked that up as well. So, like in terms of the way that I I see it, you have three core narratives going. One of them gets dropped quite early on. Uh, the first narrative being Cutter's explanation as a witness of Borden's murder. Mm-hmm. That then progresses to Borden being taken into prison yep. and being given Angie's diary, mm-hmm. which follows the story of them as they grow up. Mm-hmm. And so you explore Angie's story. And this is supposedly the diary of a dead, a dead Angie's. Uh, so you have Borden reading Angie's diary in prison while he's waiting on death row. And he's following along what happened to Angie's during their time as they would grow up as rival magicians. Meanwhile, or not even meanwhile, uh, you find out um, earlier into that story uh, that as the career progression happens of, of these two men, uh, you've been following another story which doesn't get explained exactly where that story fits into th- the timeline at first, but it is mm-hmm. Angie's later in his career in Colorado seeking out a man named Tesla, and he, for whatever reason, has Borden's diary. And so he's been reading Borden's diary, and it's directed him to Colorado to find this man Tesla because he thinks Tesla is related to Borden's secret trick, the transporter mm-hmm. man. Mm-hmm. And you then find out that Scarlett Johansson was sent by Angie's. Mm-hmm. Why do I forget Scarlett Johansson's name in this? Uh, um, I've got it written down. I Olivia. Olivia. Olivia, yeah. To Olivia and Julia. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Olivia yeah. was sent to Borden, and whilst there, she falls in love with him, but she also does take his diary. So to make sure that she doesn't get in trouble for it, Angie stages a, um, uh, a break-in, and he takes that diary, and hence we have two men reading each other's diaries, following... Their concurrent stories, but also following the story at the of 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 uh, Angie's in Colorado. So you have yes. them growing up, yes. him in Colorado, Borden in prison. Yeah, those are I guess you'd say are the three timelines. Well, the other timeline also is <laughs> is uh, the Michael. I, I oh, refer yeah, Michael. to it as the Michael Caine timeline, yep. which 
is probably the current timeline. Which is him, in many ways, telling the story, which is the finality of the film. Yeah, he's yeah. kind of like telling it from the end of the film. Because yeah, he's, he's explaining it to Borden's daughter. And he's also explaining it to the detective. Yes. Eventually. I, Eventually, I mean, that's yeah. like later on in the film. But yeah. yeah, he's explaining it to the daughter. After the whole thing is over. And it's crazy because that we, we then realise... Jess, yeah, yeah. We then realize that that scene at the beginning of the film is actually the end. The end of the film, film, yeah. (laughs) Because you find the end of that that scene play out. Oh, goodness. What a genius, man. What a genius. Goodness gracious. Let's talk a little bit about, um, actually, we'll we'll get into the act two, um, and then we can talk a little bit about Tesla's character, because I think he's a fascinating character, and also played by David Bowie. Like, how unexpected is that? Yeah, I, uh, you'll, if you guys are following uh, a legit cool uh, podcast Instagram, you'll see one of my uh, regrams soon about David Ooh. Bowie. And uh, I have a not controversial, controversial opinion there. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> David Bowie. Bowie. Um, yeah, so let's get into act two of this awesome, I call it the Nolan transition right here. <laughs> um, so Angie has an assistant, Olivia, played by Scarlett Johansson, spy on Borden to learn how he performs the transported man. However, Olivia falls in love with Borden and becomes his assistant. There's something I actually want to talk about there, but like I'm just going to keep going and then we'll come back to it. <laughs> <laughs> with her help, Borden sabotages Angier's act, crippling him in the process. Confronted by Angier, Olivia gives him a copy of Borden's encoded diary olivia begins to see that angier's obsession over his competition with borden has caused him to be more selfish and forget about his wife angier acquires the keyword to decode it tesla is the keyword by threatening to kill fallon Um, the diary takes angier to america to meet scientist nikola tesla who angier believes built a machine for borden tesla becomes suspicious towards Angier as he knows that he is obsessed with the machine but agrees to create the machine for him. Angier realizes the diary is fraudulent, created as a distraction. Tesla builds the machine for him, but instead of teleporting objects, Tesla's machine duplicates anything placed inside in a short distance away. Now, um, so, you know, when, when he... We see him travel to the the is it the Rockies, Colorado, Colorado, Colorado. Yeah. yeah. So the Rockies in Colorado. We see him traveling there. You know, at this point, we obviously don't know how he even thought of the idea of getting there until he's actually reading the diary, mm-hmm. and then he picks up. Oh, okay. Well, he's the the keyword is Tesla. Um, now, this is something that I didn't actually pick up, and you'll probably know. Why did Why did Borden come up with the keyword Tesla? Yeah. Is this one of your theories as well? No, he, he does explain it. So Does he? He says when he gives him the keyword, he says to him, because he needs that keyword to un- unlock the, the mysteries of this diary, he says to him, I want your methods, not your keyword. And he says, the keyword is the method. Yeah. And this is, again, Borden's misdirect. So he's constantly misdirecting people away from his secret. <clears throat> and as we find out, for both of them, as they're reading each other's diaries, they have a little sentence to each other at the very end of each diary. And Borden says to him, this is where I leave you, Angiers, here at the turn. So 
Tesla as a whole was a misdirect, which Borden still had dealings with him because uh, he utilizes some of his electricity, his um, alternating current electricity as part of making his act look more special. So when mm. you look at uh, later parts with the transported man, you see, uh, yeah, that it's all wired up and it looks very um, audacious and grand. But Tesla's completely a misdirect on that front. And, and Tesla even says it to him. He's like, I'm working on the machine that you want. I've never actually succeeded in making a machine as you want it, but I can. <laughs> so I think that's, um, it's, and it, you know, it's, it's one of the great little science fiction elements to this film. So yeah. yeah. Did you, did, okay. yeah. Do you see like, so I Tess, didn't... Tesla's not really, it's completely a misdirect sent yeah. him to Colorado, mm. but he did deal with Tesla. He did deal with yeah, Tesla. Yeah, so Borden did deal with Tesla. Okay. Okay. So I, I completely just like missed, missed that part where yeah. I was like, why is the keyword Tesla? Like, I, I, don't, I don't know how the Tesla puzzle fits in this, yeah. apart from the obvious of um, Angie is going to see Tesla. Yeah. So he was completely sent there by Borden. So Borden completely trolls him, yeah. <laughs> which is awesome. It's an awesome, I mean, like the character that he plays against um, Angie is, is, is perfect because you'd, you'd think that for two magicians, they would be somewhat of the same character, but they're not. Yeah. They have, they have, I guess, the same objective. One's one person's objective is far more extreme than the other, yeah. you know. I.e., Angie is like he's willing to go that extra distance because he's also known as like the greatest magician, right? Yeah, he has the reputation. He's got the best showmanship. Yep, um, that's definitely clarified in the film. And then when you have someone uh, like Jackman, the greatest showman, <laughs> <laughs> foreshadowing his career. Foreshadowing. Christian Bale, American Psych. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, well, I, I disagree on that point only because I actually feel, and this is uh, something that does come out towards the end of the film, that they both have two completely different objectives. Right. Um, which, yeah, and they've both been overtaken by vengeance. Sure. Or okay. revenge. Okay. And gotcha. by both, I mean, two out of three of them have been overtaken by revenge, <laughs> which we'll get to. <laughs> which we'll get to. Oh, man, I love this also. It's so good. It's so good. I mean, clearly you probably got a much more analytical eye compared to myself. In this oh, film. Man, I'm going to blow your mind away and blow my mind away. as well around some of the things that happened in this film. My goodness. Some of the theories, some of the things I was like, oh my gosh, but just, and, and a lot of this is, it's just great padding to an already sur- like incredibly strong story yep. with twist. Everything. Yeah. It just flows. It flows. Yeah. It flows. And like the timelines, like even rewatching this movie, <clears throat> excuse me, the timelines were kind of like messing me up a little bit because I always have to remind myself, oh, okay, I'm watching a Nolan film. I'm watching a Nolan film. Okay, so he's talking about this moment in time, but it's not really the current time that we're following. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure the current time we're following is the the Michael Caine time um, <laughs> that we're, I mean, not not uh, supposed to be focused on, but yeah. that's kind of the handrail to yeah. how all these other stories that take place in different time periods. I think it spans over 10 years or something from the beginning of when they, from when they were assistants all the way up to them having this like feud and revenge. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's a lot taken. And, and actually, you know, the character that he plays, um, I'm talking about David Bowie. Um, I didn't actually know David Bowie could act. Oh. I was like, holy crap, this guy is amazing. He is phenomenal, man. He is just 
uh, what an amazing piece of talent. Yeah, I rest was like, in peace. He like just. His um his clipped accent is phenomenal, and also he's acting alongside Andy Serkis and Hugh Jackman. What oh, a right. what a dream trio! What a dream. Also, dream. yeah, we... <laughs> David Bowie's his own superhero, but we also get Gollum coming out there. <laughs> Gollum, Gollum you know, David Bowie, yeah, and Wolverine. <laughs> oh, um, man. Yeah, no, he's phenomenal, and I I think what I love is his his wisdom of someone who's been through and is continuing to go through his own rivalry with Edison mm. in uh, the science race, the, uh, and the race to electricity. Exactly. And this is where the film anchors itself in its, um, it's almost like it's real timeline piece because this is when Edison, Thomas Edison and uh, Nikola Tesla are also having their rivalry battle yep. in real life. Yep. So I thought that's interesting is that we have, a fictional telling of two magicians. Yeah. And then we also have like real characters who are fictionalized in the film. Yeah. That are in rivalry to like, it's like the space race, but except for them, it's like the light bulb race and yeah. the electricity race. It's, um, it's great. And I think that the sabotage, these, uh, these people that are on either side fighting for them or fighting against them. Uh, and you, and, and you set Tesla up as this guy that has, Seem, seemingly seems to be humble and I'm just trying to retire and do my thing for this <laughs> town and I've made things better for the people. Yeah, not really. <laughs> but not really, no. And he, he has this element in him which s- makes him seem a little unhinged in the same way that Jackman, while seeming... Like, Angiers plays the protagonist until a point. And, and, and up until that point, and even a little bit further in, you have this sense of... Oh, like, and, and I think it really comes to this line that Borden uh, um, brings up over and over again about, are you willing to get your hands dirty? This is what it costs. This is what it means to be a magician. Yeah. Um, and again, I think this is my thesis about why they both do what they do. Yeah. Yeah. Which we get to. <laughs> are you going to start spitting some philosophy here? Yeah, let's, let's. <laughs> <laughs> um, mm. So moving right along, Tesla builds the machine. Oh, sorry. I went through that. <clears throat> Tesla is driven from Colorado Springs by agents of his rival, Thomas Edison, but has the machine and delivered to Angier. He advises Angier to destroy it, saying it will bring him only misery. Of course, like, you know, someone like Angier is not going to, like, believe that sentence. Like, nothing at this point for the character is going to stop him. No. Like, he's, he's just a freight train and he is going. Yeah. Like, not even the brakes are going to stop on this freight train. Yeah. Um, so I find it interesting about these types of stories where you have very vengeful characters and one always manages to supersede the other. Like there's no, there's no kind of like um, double negative there. You know, there's no like cancelling out of yeah. the powers. One person's always going to win. Yeah. And it almost seems so clear that someone like Angie is going to win. But just because of his sheer determination. I mean, we also got determination from um, Borden. Borden. Yeah. But there's there's something quite psychotic and you know very um, yeah unhinged is a really good word but yeah. also uh, like the other word that comes to mind is uh, um, sociopathic as well. Well, you watch it with his rings trick leading into yeah. his first um, time doing the bullet catch in yeah. front of an audience, yeah. and you and you see him oh my getting gosh. riled up and angry at the audience and pulling a gun on them. Yeah, and and I think that like that that element where he says like. Two people, you don't get it, you don't understand. My secrets are everything. And we see this uh, in absolutely brutal way 
as Borden sabotages his own relationships, yeah. particularly his relationship with his with his wife. Um, mm. Yeah, which is just devastating. <laughs> yeah. A bit is very sad. I know, man. I mean, I, I feel sorry for all of the love interests that get involved in these relationships. They don't know what they're getting themselves involved no. in, you know. They're all they're coming into these relationships like, how normal people would come into a relationship, yeah. you know, rose petal uh, glasses, and you're like, oh, this this is a lovely person. Look at how, look at how this guy's like influencing my daughter right now. You know, yeah. like such a lovely, charming gentleman, but you don't know what's behind closed doors. No. But this is also what um, Borden talks about: is that is it Borden or Angie's that say we says a line about how my life is a secret or something like that. That's, um, it's that's something that Borden says. Yeah. Yeah. My life is a secret and you're just going to have to deal with that. Yeah, that's, this is what it is. This is what it is. I'm a magician. Um, you remember there's a there's a crucial scene which is crushing between Borden and Sarah when they're at dinner and he says, look, I've just come from the performance. I'm not getting rid of this. I'm not losing yeah. my awesome tea. I've just had a uh, – at this point, his, his uh, Fallon's just been rescued from death and he's like, I've just had a very um, – Difficult day. I think he says something along the lines of, I've, I've had a very difficult day and I've come through the end of it. And and that that moment of Fallon getting taken is a pivotal point in his plan to lead Angiers off on his wild goose chase. Yeah. So it's a really important moment for him in his uh, revenge quest. Yeah. Um, but they're both at the same time trying to still do their shows and still do their magic and still perform for people even as they're fighting. It's... Uh, it's just a, it's just a wild, it's a wild ride. It's a wild. It's almost like a goose chase. Um, but you know, something I was reading online when I was doing a little bit of research for this film was that um, the characters are sort of caught in a bit of a loop, mm. right? And and I think the way the story is told is that it does feel like a little bit of a loop because we're jumping in different time periods in the space of like ten years or so. Yeah, you know, you feel like you are in a bit of a loop, and it's going to continue, and then. When you're surprised by the the duplicate versions, right? You're kind of like, oh my gosh, maybe it's going to continue to be a loop. Mm. You know, when is this going to end? Because none of the characters really die. Well, they kind of do. It depends on how much you want to dive into existentialism. <laughs> but um, yeah, you know, like the character, both those characters are still alive by the end. No, and dies. Okay. Yeah, okay, he is. He does have his final okay moment yeah. of but, but i guess my, my point is that the characters are are still there right like the mm. two characters that we maybe not the same characters that we see from the beginning yeah. but the two characters are still there still by the there. end yeah. Yeah. and so they can catch themselves in the in another continuous re- revengeful uh cycle yeah. if they really wanted to yeah absolutely and that's the crazy thing because they don't have catharsis for them maybe someone like borden has catharsis because he's managed to get revenge on Angiers. He comes through at the end, yeah. yeah. It, it, the, there is a, a sense of loss and there is a moment which um, which leads to the uh, Borden's death where we find... Yeah, the moment which leads to Borden's death is what um, brings... Because every moment in this film is a choice for these two to stop what they're doing and walk away. And there's even a line that Borden says to Fallon where he says, that's it. We're done. We walk away. We wipe our hands clean of this. Yeah. We're not going to touch him. We're done. <clears throat> and um, that moment's, yeah, that's, that's a wild little moment. Yeah. 
has a wild moment. And, and a lot of that comes from watching the new Transported Man trick. Mm. The two of them trying to figure out what, what did he do? How did he do it? How did he get 50 yards away while he's, in, um, while he's limping from his bullet, yeah. bullet shot to the leg? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. that's crazy. I love the line. It actually reminds me of that line that he says to, uh, to Fallon. He said, um, so all you got was the fact that like he, he went through the floor, the trap door, trap door, and he's, and he's looking away and he gets up there and less than a second or something like yeah. that. Is that all you got? And he gets all angry at him. Yeah. And then he and it quickly jumps to another scene, probably in the same room. Yeah. Um, he says to him, okay, so I found like he found something, right? Yeah. Um, and there's, there's kind of a little bit of a re- reveal for him, but it's not ultimately complete yet until he gets to the end. Yeah. But there's just so many great lines in this film. Mm. But there's always great lines in Nolan films. Mm. There's always like some amazing like like how do people come up with this? I just realized something. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it something now or something for Act Three? It's only for Act Three. Everything's okay. Act Three. Well, <laughs> guess what? We're actually getting into Act Three. Woo, now. The prestige. <laughs> We're getting into the prestige. And hit this awesome transition ah. again. So in Act Three, Borden's wife Sarah is driven to suicide by his contradiction or contradictory personality now okay i just want to say something really quick about this and this is one of the the issues the very minor issues i have in this film is that when we talk about disposable characters i thought that a character like sarah was going to be fleshed out so much not just her character but her relationship with borden Mm -hmm. fleshed out so much that's why i think a movie like this could have done with an extra 15 minutes maybe Mm -hmm. you know so we can explore the depths of their relationship together because the only thing that we get for Sarah right at, in the entire film is really just how she's reacting to the life of Borden. And rightfully so. Like the, the movie is about Borden and, and Jez. Yeah. But if you're going to if you're going to write a character that commits suicide, mm. I think that whole suicide situation could have had emotional weight if we had seen a much more fruitful, loving relationship between the two of them that eventually drives them to, you know what I mean? Yeah, and may I just say this, like, rings very similar again. And this and this is a critique of Nolan's poor writing of female characters because he can't create this more than one-dimensional character for Sarah yeah. who then commits suicide. Yeah. And this follows not well, six years later in Inception with Mal. Oh, like it's yeah. It's such a similar yeah. element where... All we see of a character is what what we're allowed to see, and it's not very much for a whole element of a person's, um, and particularly a um, uh, main character's um, psyche and heart and drive, um, which we find is part of boredom. Is that there is this deep connection to Sarah for one of the brothers, but not for the other, mm. and. Um, that's just wild, yeah. Like, <clears throat> and you know, in theory, definitely that would drive somebody to suicide. Mm. Absolutely, mm. but we also don't. We get, don't get enough of that. We don't get enough of that. We don't get a time jump yeah. of that relationship to to really pay off the fact that she's going to commit suicide. The but in theory, he, I, I, but I guess the things that he pushes into is that everything we see is what's written in the diaries until sure. the diaries both run out. That's right. So that's right. We get very little always from Borden and what's going on yeah. with him, and that's part of the reveal. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, all we get is the stuff that, in many ways, Borden has allowed Angius to see. That's all we're allowed to see. Sure. Is what Angius has seen. 
Yeah. Uh, and we don't really get much of Sarah except for that. This is what Nolan does a lot with his films is that he uses the characters as a um, as a sort of scope mechanism for the audience. Mm-hmm. So whatever the characters are experiencing, the audience, the audience are experiencing the same thing as well. So if he wants to refrain information from the audience, he uses a character to be able to do that. I mean, he does that in Inception. He does that in Memento. Um, just uh, great ways of telling a story um, and telling a character. So Tito bought in and uh, Angie's feud. Olivia leaves. In London, Angie debuts the real transporter man using Tesla's machine, appearing to have teleported across the theatre. Borden sneaks backstage and witnesses Angie fall through a trapdoor and, uh, and drown in a tank. He is discovered by Cutter and turned over to the police. Unable to prove his innocence, Borden is found guilty of murder and sentenced to death. So this is where I'm kind of a little, where, where I feel like Nolan takes a little bit of a misstep here. And I could be wrong here. You'll, you'll probably be able to give some really good insight and a good explanation around it. At this point of the film, he sees that um, Angers is seemingly accidentally dies yeah. and he attempts to save him. Yeah. What do you think this is about? Because for me, I was like, okay, that seems a little bit odd because I guess the whole time I've, I've always thought that both characters were literally trying to kill each other, mm. but maybe it's more of a case of Angie is the one that is willing to make, do whatever it takes to kill the other person. Yeah. Um, but then I'm so surprised by the fact that he's, well, he or his brother, I guess, yeah. <laughs> is willing to commit the murder. Yeah. So what do you make of that? Because, like, for me, I was like, oh, that's a little bit of a misstep because mm. it didn't seem like it was inconsistent. Like, it, it was consistent with his character up yeah. until this point. Yeah. So I think uh, there's there's uh, several points. I Yeah, so I think it makes sense because there's several points in this final plot line which is happening for the brothers, for Bordens, yeah. and for Angiers. Angier wants to produce his trick a hundred times and do the most amazing show for the audience. And he knows it's going to be a big middle finger to Borden, which he's counting on. Whilst at the same time, he's just triumphing that his, his trick has succeeded. And there is a line where he says, when they're in the prison, I don't care about your trick. You have to admit mine is much better. (laughs) And I think that that's a, a moment that's a moment which helps you to start to understand what's happening for Borden because the Borden that goes into that, that theater that night is a different Borden to the one that says, leave it. We're done. We're not going to deal with them anymore. So one of the brothers goes in, he can't help himself. He wants to know why the trick is done. That's the reason he's there. He wants to figure it out. He has no interest in Angie's. He just wants to know how the trick is done. Now that's his desperation. He then finds Angie's drowning and just wants to save him. He doesn't really care about the consequences so much as he's like, I'm here, what the heck? Why is it like why is there a real lock on this on this water tank? Uh, and then you have him flip. And the thing that flips is that once he finds out in prison that Borden is still alive, uh, that Angie's is still alive through his diary, because again, this is supposed to be the diary of a dead man, but then that dead man's speaking to him and he thinks it's a fake until Angie's rocks up with his daughter, Jess. And so I think this is a horrible element for Angie's again, 
where he's doing another FU to Borden. Um, Borden's been taken for his death, and Jesus just takes up with it. He's like, great, everyone thinks I'm dead, that's fine. I'm going to mess with this man one more time. So this is horrible because I think Borden's, the brothers, they decided to stop. One of them just went to go see how the trick was done, but I think they had really truly at that sense, like kind of come to a point of, we're not trying to sabotage Angiers anymore. I just really want to know how the trick is done because he is, like Borden is such a magician. He just wants to know. But then Angiers' character, even after Borden's been kicked down and he could even clear his name by saying, I'm not dead, though he never would because that would reveal his trick, he decides to give Borden another FU by taking his daughter away from him. Mm. And that's where Borden flips at the end. And I think that's where we get to the final scene of the film where Borden, the other brother, is back for revenge for his brother. Okay. Yeah. Does that, that, makes does that track? Yeah, so I, that tracks, I feel that like tracks when, he's, when he's at the theatre, he has no intention of trying to kill Angiers. Gotcha. But he does, after finding him, taking him his daughter away, letting him die on death row, and find, like he doesn't care about the trick. And here's one thing that is great, and Jesus does end up finding out how the trick is done as he mm. dies. Yeah. But Borden at the end doesn't care, and he lets it all burn down. He doesn't even care about how the trick is done, which is, I think, very cool. <laughs> and I, th- I think I know how you're going to allude to the characters having two different objectives yep. by then. Yep, yep. Um, so I'm going to continue with the rest of the act three and yep. then, um, we'll, we'll flesh out the rest of that ending. Cause the ending is pretty fantastic. Woo. Um, so, uh, he is discovered by Cutter and turned over to the police. Unable to prove his innocence, Borden is found guilty in the murder uh, and sentenced to death. Tesla's machine is sold off to a wealthy Lord Cal, Cal, Codlow? 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 Lord Codlow. Yeah. <laughs> Lord Codlow. Lord Farquhar. <laughs> Lord Farquhar, yeah. um, Whose true identity is revealed to be a seemingly still alive Angier. Um, yeah. Plot twist. Um, big plot twist. That's, that was, that's twist number one. That was twist number one that was first revealed, right? Which is... Oh, well, I, so I, I say there's two minor twists. Yeah. The first, the first twist is Borden had sent... Um, Angie is on a wild goose t- chase in Colorado when he gets to that point in his diary where he's like, hang on a second, everything you're doing is a waste of time. Right. That's the first plot twist. The second plot twist is this one. Oh, no, sorry. The second plot twist is Borden in prison finding out that Angie sure. is alive. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, that's a what? Because that's a plot twist. Well, it's still surprising because you know that, that Borden never knew about this whole like duplication thing. No, never. That's, never had that's an a idea. huge and, and I and he still get yells shocked. at the lawyers like, what are you talking like this must be a fake. Yeah. Like this can't be real because Angie is dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, you have to stop this. You have to stop this Angie. You know, you need to tell them that you're alive and yeah. and this is so heartbreaking. So, so it's technically five plot twists in the end. Because then the, that's the third one. Okay. Angie is coming to life and revealing himself at the prison. Yeah. It's plot twist number three. Whew. Okay. Yeah. I thought you were going to keep going. Yeah, 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 we'll, right. we'll, 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 we'll keep going. We'll, 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 we'll time them. Yeah, <laughs> we'll tie them in. Um, uh, where am I? Uh, Angie visits Borden in prison, accompanied by Borden's daughter, Jess. In exchange for his tricks, Borden asks Angie to let his daughter go. But Angie leaves with Jess. When Cutter realizes that Angie is still alive, he is disgusted that Angie allowed Borden to be sentenced to death, but agrees to help dispose of of Tesla's machine. 
Borden is hanged for Angie's murder. Oh, what a line to finish line to that finish. character, eh? Oh, Where he's like, what, are there any last words? And then I, I thought he was going to say, are you looking closely? You I thought, he, oh, are you watching closely? I thought he was going to say that, but then he says, abracadabra. I'm like, oh! And he said, are you watching closely to the guard that he, he tricked? Yeah, he put, yeah, put him in the cuffs. Right. Put him that in cuffs. awesome. Lord. How did he do that, though? Oh, just, just magic. It's, it's one of those kind of, I call them the film logic things, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, um, his sleight of hand, he'd be able it's to. It's like, that. you know, we, we, for this whole, for the whole part. Watch some Penn and Teller and your mind will be blown about what humans <laughs> can do with sleight of hand because that would be very simple for many people. True, true, true. <laughs> but, but, you know, the film goes out of its way to reveal all the secrets of the tricks. Oh, yeah, yeah, tricks and yeah. so, the, unfortunately, you have this one moment in the prison where he puts him into change. Jeez. Like, how did he do this? <laughs> <laughs> it's like... But I always, uh, I always apply film logic. It's like, well, you know, there's, there's some kind of film logic explanation here, yeah. uh, but we don't want to go down. Um, we don't want to be detailed or picky about it. You know, you just kind of let it happen. Yeah. Because for, it's a good entertainment. It's a good, good piece of entertainment. You yeah. kind of have to have that. Yeah. If you have the whole movie just drowned in explanations. How, how does then... Tesla create a cloning machine? <laughs> <laughs> I don't explain that. <laughs> yeah, why do you say that? And that's why I, I like to call it, like, complicated science. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Film logic. It doesn't have to explain itself. Like, that's not the point of the film. The point of the film is about this relationship and they're using all these tools and utilities around them as a way to tell the story. Tesla's is the one which is the science fiction, not science fact moment. Exactly. It breaks up. That's okay. But that is okay. Cool. Um, So, in prison, abracadabra. Abracadabra. Angier goes back to the theater. A stranger enters and shoots Angier, revealing himself as Alfred Borden. Angier discovers Borden was, or quote, quote unquote, Borden was an identity shared by a pair of identical twins. The brothers performed the original transported men together when one was Borden and the other was disguised as, disguised as Fallon. Alfred loved Sarah while his dead brother, Freddie, had loved Olivia, <laughs> well, and, which by the way, Freddie was the nickname that he wanted to give himself, right? Mm-hmm. Where did that nickname come from? Alfred. Oh. It was just like a... Yeah, it's just what uh, Olivia called him. Right. Gotcha, yeah. gotcha. Oh, yeah. And then he says, doesn't he say that to, to Sarah? Sarah? Yeah, yeah. yeah. She's like, where did, where did Freddie come, come from? from? Yeah, yeah, that's right. While Angie uses Tesla's machine, every performance creates a new Angie. While the original drowns in a tank beneath the stage, Angier dies and drops his lantern, setting the theater alight. Borden leaves and picks up Jess at Cutter's workshop, and the burning theater rows of tanks hold dead Angiers. Do you like the fact that Cutter came around eventually? I mean, I I guess it it just exposes the real innocence of Cutter. Like, he's not willing to go to the depths of what the magicians are doing. Even though he does, out of the words, does he talk about, or talk in line about uh, magicians making sacrifices? He says that idea about getting your hands dirty. Getting your hands dirty. And, gotcha, and, yeah, and yeah. even Cutter creates the second bird trick, the new bird trick. And yeah. this, is, this is part of it, the idea of a trick and then a new trick, um, which we'll talk about because, yeah, there's a progression. Um that Cutter's always been about showmanship, but also about understanding 
when the end is the end and when obsession goes too far. And I think at the end, Cutter is the one that tells the Borden brother to come to the theater because that's where Angie's will be. And as Cutter leaves the theater, Borden walks up to head into the theater and Cutter nods to him. Uh, not only that, Following Angie's death, Cutter is the one who is showing this magic trick to Jess, and and him and him and Alfred give it give each other like a knowing nod, yeah. Um, like this this you know this is the end of this. And I think what Cutter respects most is people letting their obsessions lie, uh, which I think comes to this Borden character and like what it's all what it's all about at the end. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I actually I love the fact that Cutter's character is is he li- he eventually gets to that point where he is the mentor that should be the right mentor for the magicians. He's the kind of mentor that you want to have around because he's he's anchored in some kind of moral compass, yeah. which you also see um, Borden have as well. Yeah. You know, he eventually shows his cards that, he, you know, he's a good guy. Yeah. Like, he is actually the real protagonist. This whole time throughout the movie, you think that he is the antagonist. Yeah. But he's actually the protagonist by the end of the film. By the end of the film. And that also seems to be a, a common theme for Nolan, that there are some characters that you think are protagonists, but they end up being their own antagonists of their own story. Yeah. Um, in some shape or form, it might be a little bit more layered and complex in telling that part, but yeah. there's always misdirection with Nolan. He always likes to have twists. I don't think there's any film he's done... Where there's no twist at the end. I mean, maybe with the exception of the Batman trilogy. But even the Batman trilogy... Batman Begins, I feel there's less of a twist. Like, the biggest twist is Ra's al Ghul is Liam Neeson. Yeah. But um, I think The Dark Knight and... um, And, yeah, and The Dark Knight Rises both do have those twists. Both in terms of with the Joker and what happens on the ferry. That's right. And then with Bane and his true identity. Yeah. Yeah. Well... Yeah. Like his, yeah, or, and uh, Razal Gil's successor. And that's another twist, but not to the same extent as any of his other films. And I think that linearity and that following through with what is going on in his other films, like his Batman trilogy, I think it keeps quite pure um, of, yeah. of, of those high, high concepts. He's got enough concept in Batman, he's got the perfect archetype to tell stories through. So I don't think he feels he needs to depend on showing people a concept. Yeah. 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 His core concept is a Batman in a in our reality. Sure, sure. And he always has to find a way to throw in some surprise elements. I always like yeah. to say that there's a difference between surprise elements and twists. Yeah. You no know, twists are something that seems out of the box mm. and away from continuity a little bit, but yeah. still, when you think about it, you're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Whereas like a surprise is like. Uh, uh, Harvey Dent's character becoming Two Face, like that's a surprise, that is a surprise. and less of a twist, and um, and how he reacts with the Joker and his final showdown with Gordon and, and uh, Batman, for sure. Like those those elements, they they play off as a twist because you don't know what's going to happen, and when you find these characters practicing things you wouldn't expect, mm. that's when you are pleasantly surprised. You know, yeah. Yeah. Um, so one of my favorite characters also in this film is, uh, what was going to say? Who's, who's the character I was thinking about? 
Um, oh, I was going to say uh, Scarlett Johansson's character. Olivia. Yeah, Olivia. I think she's she also plays a good part in really exposing the honesty <laughs> of these characters. Mm. And... Um, you bringing know, out who they truly are. Bringing out who they truly are. Mm-hmm. I mean, Sarah does a good job at that too. You know, yeah. bringing out like who uh, Borden is really as well. Yeah. Um, but the, the the biggest one that I wanted I wanted to see more of Olivia's character be involved with Angier eventually getting to that point of psychosis where he creates like multiple versions multiple of versions her. Of like her. I wanted she her to be out of the film. She, after Sarah dies. Yeah, yeah, she's she's kind of like like unseen and sort of yeah. unheard of and she's yeah. missing for the rest of the film. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I would have loved to see a bit more of her and also Scar, Scar Joe. I mean, she's, she's, so she's cool. amazing. You give her anything Black and she Widow. would like. Black yeah. Widow is supporting cast. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> sorry, sorry. I understand. Is that you, a bit of shade? You were, doing, no, you were doing a little, yeah, about the Black Widow movie. <laughs> oh yeah, because I think you like it a little bit more. Oh no. Okay. Oh, it's not very high up on my list. Um, Cool. Can I can I jump to some theory time? Let's jump to some theories and also jump to the last two elements. Uh, the elements. last two twists. Yeah, yeah, last yeah, two yeah. Twists. yeah. So what? So yeah, let's talk about the last two elements because they they lie in what I feel is um, part of my my final big theory. So you have uh, you have Bale uh, Borden's character and Angie's character after Borden shoots him, mm. having their final conversation. And I think this is my favorite Jackman scene in the whole film. He's acting in his chop. He's just acting the crap out of this moment at his death where they're both talking about why they did it Mm. and why did they do all of this. And you realize that for, for Angiers, aside from his quest for revenge, it's always been about being the greatest showman. (laughs) (laughs) But he, I love his line where he says, it's like, didn't you ever wonder why we did it? every night when we got up and we saw the look in their eyes, which is like, that's the premise of the prestige. The prestige is about giving them something that they didn't know they wanted, Mm. something that they didn't expect Mm. uh, to fool them for even an instant, but to have that moment, that look of wonder in their eyes, it's about the prestige. And I love that moment because again, it's built off self-sacrifice. It's built off this element of hard work. It's built off this element of, doing some dying for the craft. But Borden's concept of that is about being the greatest magician, not the greatest showman, but about being the greatest magician. And I think it really comes back to a moment at the very beginning when they're young men and they go and see the Chinaman's performance. And afterwards they're watching him at his cart. And he says, this is what it's all about. His life is the lie. He looks old and decrepit so that he can do the fishbowl trick. By the way, do you think, that's do you think they true. were right? I that's true. I, I th- so I think Jackman because because Jackman does explain it to um to uh to his wife Julia before she dies because yeah. he's showing her at night in bed where he's like, look, this is what she does. This is what this Chinaman does, and she's like, no way. And he's like, yeah, I don't think so either. But Borden thinks he does. And I think but then really she she Borden. also eventually she 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 dies believing in that though, doesn't she? Because I'm pretty um, sure she says a line where she's like, "Wow, so he is willing to to, to, to make, do that to, to do, do that, that commitment." Yeah, I believe so, yeah. and it, and I think it's it's this that's thing. kind of sad, man. It's well, so <laughs> Borden and Borden is an incredibly sad character because of this. Because I think if that's his reality, 
that that is a really poor reality. And I think what you notice later on with Angie is, is how envious and angry he is that Borden is seemingly living a good life while he's suffering because he lost his wife. But Borden as well isn't. He isn't living a good life. He's actually tormented because he's not one person but two. Mm. And he says, we, we were both living half a life. And mm. it was good enough for us. Yeah. But it wasn't for our wives. It, wasn't, our for it wasn't good enough for Sarah. It wasn't good enough for Olivia. Yeah. And I think that's the thing is he says, I will like do anything for my secret. My secrets are all I have. Yeah. So Bale's being a magician is built around secrecy. Jackman's showmanship is built around um, the audience. And I think that's... Well, I was going to say built around pride. It is built around pride, yes. Yeah. But it, the, the there is an element, and this is what I n- never noticed until just this last viewing, uh, which kind of made sense of all of this, was the Lord, Col- Lord Caldwell character. At the very beginning of the film, he says it very offhand where he doesn't use how, how he doesn't use his real name and he's not allowed to um, give re- a revelation um, of what he does for a living to his family. And he just says it very quickly to Cutter, and then it's just kind of forgotten about. But it explains his wealth the whole way through the film. It never makes a deal of it. What it does make a big deal of is that Borden is very poor. <laughs> <laughs> but you never seem to notice that there is any want or need for NGs. And I think when he goes to Colorado, you chalk his ability to go and travel to Colorado for an extended period of time and having a ludicrous amount of money all up to his success as a, as a magician. But it's not. It's because he is and has always been uh, an inheritor of a great estate and a noble family. Uh, and that that's who he is. He's actually this wealthy person. He actually is Lord Coldwall. But he gave that up so that he could be Angiers and he could live this life because he wanted to be a showman. So there's something really interesting there, and I feel like that's also a little bit of an analogue into film and into actors yeah. and into the creative arts, where it's like, I want to be a creative, I want to be a performer, but I actually have this responsibility and this duty. Mm. Uh, and so Angie's is able to live like Tesla does, like with a bit of ludicrous like wealth. <laughs> and I think that's a really interesting element, that yeah. Cutter is much more like Borden than like Angie's, because Angie's doesn't quite get it. <laughs> True. Yep. True, 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 mm. true. So pre- that is pretty much the end of Act 3. Mm. I'm going to hit this uh, transition here. I don't know what this transition is, but I'm just going to hit it anyway. <laughs> That's the end of Act 3. So to sum up the whole story for the both of us, or we can go individually, yep. um, maybe I'll... Uh, Maybe I'll start it. <laughs> I'll start up the Go summary for it. here. Go for it. Um, it's, it's a little bit of an epilogue, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I gather from this whole story is that revenge is never a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you allow resentment to corrode away in yourself for that long, a period of 10 years, mm. you know, you have no way of, of coming back. Mm. You don't know how to distinguish between what is right and wrong anymore. You're so fixated. You're so committed. You're so obsessed. You know, if there's one word to describe the characters, obsession is probably a very good word yeah. for that. Well, it's and it's it's an obsession which is very similar to Memento. It's an obsession which is almost like it, you have short-term memory loss. You can't help <laughs> you can't to help. see yeah, what yeah, yeah. your main goal is. At least there's like matters. a there's like a medical reason behind that. Yeah. Whereas for these characters. They don't have that excuse. No. They had a choice. Yeah. You know, they had so many opportunities to, to not go. go down that road, but yet 
They do. And, I, and I, what I find so surprising about this movie and what it does so well is that the story starts off fairly tame. Mm. Starts off fairly like lukewarm, quite gentle, very easy, yep. easy on the ears, it's easy kind of on the fun. brain. It's, very, it's kind of fun. It's like, you know, like if any movie is going to be about magic, it's always going to be a little bit fun, right? Yeah. You're like, oh, this is kind of cool. I love yeah. it. I love the time period pieces too. Yeah. I'm always a big fan of watching time period pieces. Mm. I love I love the costuming and the set design yeah. and, and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. They do it really, really well in this film. But then when the surprises start to kick in, that it's really about this revenge um revenge lifestyle that both of them one more than the other is trying to take on it's it spirals into this crazy story that you you always think okay i kind of know how a revenge story is going to play out yeah but it doesn't actually play out the way that i thought it was going to play out (laughs) it gets worse it gets way and it gets gets to a point where it's it's revenge through magic as well as revenge personally yeah so they're like they're taking revenge on each other by one-upping each other's tricks Mm. And, um, like the moment where Borden like sabotages, um, Angie's trick by taking his new transporter man and appearing on stage and getting root drunk and convincing <laughs> him to get tied up is such an awesome moment. Like, That's it's a so great good. moment. That's a like, great moment. Great win. It's a great win for him because, yeah. you know, at, at that point, um, our char- the character that I love the most, which is actually, um, Borden, you know, he hasn't really had any W's. No. You know, he's had all hours for a it's long time. It's all just time. sabotage, but, like, he's yeah. never, like, quite on the front foot. He's always been on the back foot. But it's such a huge W to lose your fingers like that. Oh, oh my God, and the sacrifice. And this is where that, that line yeah. um, gets paid off yeah. of the sacrifice that he's willing it's to make. Sacrifice, yeah. You know, and his brother was willing to do the same thing. Yeah. That's crazy, yeah, man. You know, that, I mean, that's probably the other reveal. I don't know. Did you mention that reveal? Where... Oh, about cutting up his fingers? fingers? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think all of those reveals take... um, That that his final dialogue with with him is a whole bunch of reveals. And I think that's one of the big reveals is when he says that line, it does, it took sacrifice. You don't know what it costs for us to be the same person. And then it has him with the chisel, chiseling off his brother's fingers. and, um, and, And all of those things, and this is why you need to watch this twice, they, they, they flitter all the way through the entire film so that you are suddenly seeing layers and layers and layers of elements of what these two brothers did the whole time to keep up their illusion to the audience as well as to Angiers. Yeah. So this gets Man. to my, my theory. <laughs> okay, your theory. Okay, I'll, I'll just yeah, sort of wrap yeah, up yeah, my last just, thoughts yeah. um, <laughs> on this movie. So um, the plot as it stands, it, it remains as one of the most... Um, it's hard. I, I can't even think of an adjective to describe this, but it's just so well done. I mean, yeah. there's nothing else that I need to say more about it that's going to allow for this story or the quality of the story to be more than what it is because you just have to watch it. You honestly just have to watch it. Take in the story, watch it twice like what Nathan is saying. I'd say watch it like four times because you definitely will appreciate it more and it's going to grow on you. It's going to... You know, it's going to age really, really well. And after watching it again today, I'm like, man, this movie is phenomenal. Yeah, and it doesn't particularly like Nolan's like use of like very like simple filming techniques. It yeah. has this quality and this like energy to it that it looks like a film that could have been released last year yeah. easily. easily, easy. Yeah, but I mean, I could say that with like Memento, apart <laughs> from the dated filming technology, <laughs> yeah. but it's like. 
the storytelling man is just this guy's a storyteller. Uh, one thing that's a, dated about Memento would be he would have a smartphone now. So <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of simplicity there. Just film a little video of yourself. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, look, he opens up his Google Maps on where have I been? <laughs> Someone's gonna remake it, dude. Oh like, yeah, for sure. Some, that's some a good clever, remake. Some clever, like mad. Uh, Nolan Junkie that's a young filmmaker at film school right now 17 years old he's he's gonna remake Memento like in his prime time yeah that's sick I'm I'm keen for that whoever that person is I hope you're listening to Legit Cool we look forward dude he is listening to it right now and reviewing yeah yeah (laughs) but yeah you know the the way this film ends it ends on a note that is equally satisfying but equally uneasy and so I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of how I sort of take the whole story. And I, and I love to watch this film over and over again. There's not a lot of Nolan movies that I like to do repeat watches on. Yeah. Um, but Prestige, yeah, I could do a repeat watch on it because there's just something about um, very, very deep relationships that clash with each other that started off as, like, fun. Well, not fun. I guess it didn't really start off as fun. But they, they had some kind of chemistry for friendship mm. at the beginning. But they're always in competition with each other. Remember their first, the first dialogue that we get of them in backstage where uh, Borden is trying to say to him, like, you know, you can't tell me, what does he say? You, well, you think you know more than me about knots or something like that? Yeah. You know, he says something along those lines. That's when you get the first hit of exposition about their relationship. Yeah. You know? Their, their energy and their, their dynamic. The energy and the what, dynamic. What yeah. is interesting is if you think about these two brothers, whatever dynamic they share with the character, particularly Angiers, at one point, the other needs to learn about it from the, the first brother. Anytime they, one of them has an interaction with the people outside, they have to explain to the other brother what happened so yeah. that the other brother knows what's going on. The next that's time, right. Which is crazy. It's just that's an insane element to what they had to do. That's crazy. All right, I'll leave, I'll leave it over to you. All right, bro. So this is my Borden's theory, and it, and it looks at one element to this film, which once I started looking at it, it kind of flowed into the rest of it, which, as you would expect from this movie, is, yeah, of course it does. So it's all about the Bordens. <laughs> it's about the twins, and we're going to give them two names. The first Borden is Freddy. Freddy is the showman of the two. Uh, yeah. Uh, Freddy's the showman of the two. He's the one that loves the intrigue. He's the one that's a little bit more brash. He's a bit more uh, haphazard, and he's the one who is at dinner with Sarah on that night and is very outspoken. He's the one that loves Olivia. And yeah. he is also... Wait, wait, sorry. Who's this Freddy? Freddy. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So Freddy loves Olivia. Yeah, I'm with that. I'm he's a bit that, more yeah. brash. He's a bit of a showman. And I think he's the one that goes... Well, no, we know he is. He's the one that goes to the theatre that night that Angiers uh, dies and he is caught and accused of murder. So he's the one who's in prison and he's the one that dies at the end. Okay. Cool. You with me? That's Freddy. Sure. The other one, we'll call him Alfred. And Alfred is a bit more composed. He's the ingenieur. So he's the one that really works on them perfecting their techniques and making sure that their secret stays a secret. He's the one that loves Sarah. He's the one, and I think this is interesting. I so you're saying he's like the anchor. He's like he's the, like the anchor. Right. I think he's also the one that is less like, like, I think he's, He's less committed in some ways to their trick than Freddie is. Only so much as saying that his connection to Sarah becomes more important to him in some ways. Mm. And 
there's a few little moments of this. Part part of the moments is when Borden is taken away on their last meeting as Borden as um, Borden and Fallon, and he says, "I'm so sorry about Sarah. I should have tried more. I should have like worked harder on that." And there was a moment earlier on where Alfred says to Freddie, "Do what you can with Sarah. Like I think she's starting to figure out our secret." Can you just like next time you you know like just say what you need to say to her so that she believes you? You notice more and more which times Freddie is on screen and which times Alfred is on screen. By the way, props to Christian Bale because I think he knows that he's playing two different characters at any point in his on scene. He knows when he's Freddie and he knows when he's Alfred, and he knows which of them to kind of ham up a bit more of the showmany and the, a little bit more of the I care more about magic, and he knows when to present the calmer, more reserved one. He's just so talented, man. And here's the, here's the things that I think he's so talented. I think Alfred, the more sensible one, he's also a bit more of a friend to Angie's when they first start out. And Freddie, the more brash one, doesn't like Angie's as much. And I think he's the one who's more caught up with revenge than Alfred is. So all the scenes that we see with uh, the heated scenes, I should yeah. say, yeah. between Angie's and Borden is actually... Uh, uh, just Who is it? Uh, is is Freddy? It's Freddy. It's Freddy. Because Freddy, yeah. Freddy's like the ragtag. Freddy's like, the ragtag. Yeah. Freddy's the yeah. one that like loves Olivia, and he doesn't mind getting his hands. Or they both don't mind getting their hands dirty. And I think there's a few moments where it doesn't matter too much. But I think the bullet catch, for instance, that was a Freddy moment when he gets his fingers shot off. And Alfred, the sensible one, says, "Cut my fingers off." Yeah. So this is where we get to one bit that I, I, I found like kind of really blew this whole thing open for me, which is the question at the very beginning, which knot did you tie? Now, if you think about that first scene, and if you go back and rewatch it, you'll notice that the whole conversation around knots happens after they perform on stage. Mm-hmm. And I think at that time, it's Freddie who's on stage, uh, the more brash one, and he ties a knot and... It slips because he wasn't paying enough attention because he's not as much of like, he doesn't care about the details as much as, as uh, Alfred does as the sensible one. And afterwards, Cutter calls him out. like, Oi, be careful when you're not. And then he says, no, no, no. Cause Freddie's brash. He's like, we should do this knot instead. And I've convinced Julia of it. And she thinks we should too. So Julia's like, yes, let's do it. That's going to be great. The next time they're on stage there, it's not Freddie. It's Alfred, Alfred the Sensible One. And Alfred the Sensible One gets up onto stage. He knows that Freddie's been talking to, um, to to Julia about tying a new knot. And she nods to him to do it. And he hasn't properly learnt that knot. And he ties the wrong one. Alfred the Sensible One is the one that accidentally kills Julia. Okay, so I... Oh, actually, I can switch it around. No, I think I've got it wrong. Because, well... One of them. Oh, no, go, go, go. <laughs> no, 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 arc that is not a classic arc it's the kind of arc that you would never see coming because you don't once you get the reveal that it's two guys you're like oh at which point which was like who was who and who was doing what and who was calling who was driving yeah you know who was in the passenger seat yeah and i do believe that there are moments where um 
I do agree with you that for the most part, I think Freddie does the driving. You know, he's kind of like the drunk one. <laughs> he's like the drunk like, driver. This is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to do. And, and he's the one yelling at Fallon's like, you got to figure it yeah, out. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. you got to figure it out. Sure. That's Freddie. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm completely um, on board with that. And then there are other points of the film, which I think it's actually when he sees Angie's drowning in the tank, I think that's actually Alfred. Oh, yeah. I don't think that's Freddie. No, well, so that, that would mean they'd have to have done a switch, but at the very end, the one that shoots Angie's at the end is Alfred. Is Alfred, yeah. yes. So yes, that's why yeah. I, I agree with that. Be. Do you think they switched? After I think they switched because cause the reaction that he has and he's like he's willing to try and like... Save them. Because I... If I was Alfred, I'd be like, I'm going to step away from this and just yeah. pretend that I, because cause I'm the guy that's willing to make the sacrifices, yeah. whereas Alfred is probably not willing to go that length. I mean, Freddie is it? Yeah. Freddie's the one that will do it, yeah. meaning like he won't intentionally murder somebody, but if he doesn't have to save them, yeah. you know, there's always yeah. that kind yeah. of like moral differences between like uh, me not saving someone, yeah. which I don't think is like a moral difference, by the way, because that's just like where I stand morality. <laughs> but um, anyway, like I think I think he's willing to just walk away from it as yeah. opposed to intentionally murdering somebody. Um, that's sure. I think that's what I think what Alfred would do. Whereas Freddie, oh sorry, that's what I think. Oh, what am I? Yeah, no, no, no. Alfred sensible. Yeah, Freddy, Alfred's brash. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So that's why I think there's a switch that happens at, at whatever part of the film that happens. Oh, I'm not really you, sure. But could you imagine that Freddie? Oh, I, that's hard though because I'm like, I feel like you could write a thesis. Well, about you this, could like, say easily, say though. Alfred was the one that was there, and then Freddie, who's brash, says, "No, brother, we're going to switch. I'm going to take the fall. I'm going to go to jail. I'm going to potentially die." Do you, think, you, do you think Alfred... Because you have Jess. Oh, okay. Yeah, so you Wait, are, so who, who's in jail then? So, uh, Freddie. Freddie's in Freddy's jail. Freddie's the one okay. who dies in the end, who says abracadabra. And and he's the one who's reading the diary. But what, like, so when, when we get to the... Whichever way it works, I think it lands that the one that this goes... blows my mind. Well, the one that goes to the funeral <laughs> is the one that didn't... Is Alfred, the sensible one. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. he's deeply remorseful. Oh, you can see it on his you face. You can see it completely in his yeah. face. He's the one who's like sorry and hurt and you know what like i love there's a little there's a little cool brother moment where like freddie's like chatting with sarah and then freddie they do the transported man trick so that alfred appears in the apartment and i think that is a bloody cute little moment which you don't realize because you just think it's a cute little moment the movie doesn't explain but the movie does explain it that's him doing his secret trick so that they can win over sarah and he breaks into her house and i love that but the, the the whole point of like that little moment is to say that with the knot tying and like the lead into the entirety of this rivalry, it all starts with the two brothers effing up mm. on a trick, on the knot tying trick, because they both weren't on the same page at that point in their career to have both learnt that knot and both have both tied it perfectly. Because I think that's like I think that that is like that is like a line for them about what they learn it's going to take for them to become perfect at their craft. Damn. Damn, right? Um, Lastly lastly to say, I love that the bird trick is analogous of both Angier's and Borden's transporter man tricks. With the bird trick, it's all about two birds where one dies, where you find that that's what's the truth of the brothers. The Borden's are two brothers where one dies and you learn that trick and how it works very early on. And, uh, and you have Sarah's nephew like die, like crying, knowing that it happened. He killed, he killed it. it. 
But then... But where's his brother? The new, yeah, the, and the new bird trick that Angiers creates becomes an, al- an al- analogue for what supposedly his trick is, that I've created the perfect transported man trick with one man, no brothers, where I always bring the bird back. But it's not true. He's killing himself every night. And it's one man, it's one bird being turned into two birds, and one of the birds still dies. The only way to do the, the trick is to have to kill a brother every time, which I think is, yeah, it's not a brother, but it's a clone. Like, and, it's oh, a clone. My goodness. And if you want, if you, if you want to dive in <sighs> to try it. and discern who, if it is a clone or if it isn't a clone, or if, if it's like a duplicate, a real duplication, let's say the exact same barcode, right, of the person and the the thing that died was the duplicate. Like, you, you could find yourself in a spiral here, and that, that conversation could go for a very, very long time. <laughs> it never ends. It never ends. But it, um, I love that, that there, there is such an element with the, this trick that is the, the start and the end of the film, the bird trick, that yeah. it is analogous of the whole film. So, Whew. Oh, what a heavy film. And you know what? And to think think that we have covered all of that and we can still talk on and on about this just shows us that this movie is insane. Yeah, boy. So I'm going to throw it to you right now. What is your rating out of 10? I think I already said it at the beginning, just like in The Prestige. It's 10 out of 10. I don't give those out. And yeah, I'm happy to give that out on this occasion. And, and it's I worth it. It's worth it's it. It's worth ten out of ten. And I think we might, you know, in our in our rating system, we might go up to eleven at a point. So I like I already gave my critiques of Nolan, but I think those are critiques uh, at a larger point, particularly around how he writes characters. I think in this film, though, for everything that he does and everything he presents, for every moment that points towards what the story is about, for every magic trick, it's just it's a perfect film. So yeah, there we go. I've got a few perfect films, guys. You'll hear about them over time, but uh, that is definitely one. I like that. What like about you, that. bro? I'm going to have to say the same, man. Woo! I have to say the same. Yeah, boy. 10 out of 10. It's just it's such a flawless movie, you know. And um, I, there's, I'm like you as well, but maybe I have a few more films that I would put a 10 out of 10 <laughs> compared to you. That's yet to be disclosed. But, dude, man, Prestige. From Christopher Nolan, 10 out of 10. Uh, deserves some clapping here. <laughs> Everybody, stop what you're doing right now. Um, well, before you stop what you do, you know, make sure you uh, hit the notifications button so you know when the next episode of Legit Cool drops. Just so you know when we're going to be talking about films, um, whether it's Christopher Nolan ones, a part of the Legacy series, or other films that we're, we plan on doing. And, and I know we, we kind of prom- promised to review and recap a whole bunch of other films but they just take time for it to come out we've had a lot of technical difficulties lately <laughs> <laughs> it's the technical difficulties come down to either it's internet or it's actually um the program that i'm using to record this stuff on i'm not gonna give uh, i'm not gonna opt out for the while i'm not gonna what do you call it give it a bad rap no no um, give it a good rap it's a great, gonna, it's a great program we, we oh, made a technical error we made a technical error <laughs> So, you know, things like that happen. It's just the way it is. But, you know, I always make sure that we're going to continually bring out a lot of films. So 10 out of 10 for the both of us. That's pretty crazy. Um, I give it 10 out of 10 with... Memento? No. What did I give it 10 out of 10 for? I can't even remember now. 
<laughs> no, I didn't even give Spider-Man ten out of ten. Um, oh man, I'm losing track. Oh, sorry, I gave a uh, Batman Begins ten Batman out of ten. Batman Begins. Yeah. yeah. Oh no, no, sorry, I actually gave that a nine. Oh my gosh, I'm <laughs> totally confused now. There's because there's so many Nolan films that are guys go very, through very and listen ranked. to our entire catalog and tell us what River gave a ten out of ten. <laughs> no ulterior motive there. It's terrible. <laughs> this is terrible. So we should probably bring this episode to a end and um you know like i said at the beginning of this this is the fourth episode of the legacy series which we're starting with christopher nolan films the next episode of the legacy series we will be reviewing and recapping the dark Knight. i am batman <laughs> the dark Knight. the dark Knight. oh man i am so yeah. juiced for this i'm so ridiculously amped and energized for that cast and we're going to be bringing back one of our favorite casters that has uh featured on the previous episodes that is jc himself he's going to be returning for the dark knight uh recast and nathan are you going to be joining us i as think well? i may be there i may not be if there's more technical difficulties <laughs> but we'll do our best we'll do our best guys because i'm very keen to be there for this next episode. i mean if you have 3g dude you still have a space here so it's fine <laughs> Um, if you haven't already checked out our other episodes, like Nathan said, you know, check out episode 19, 20, and 21. That is Memento, Insomnia, and Batman Begins. Where can everybody find you, Nathan? You can find me on Instagram at npsammy. Uh, and uh, that's pretty much me. It's food, running, and movies. Food, running, and movies. And reposting. And reposting. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, River? Uh, you can find me personally at River Villy, oh sorry, at River underscore V-I-L-I. You can find the podcast at Legit Cool Podcasts uh, on Instagram. On Facebook, you can find us as Legit Cool Podcasts Movie Talk. Why can I not remember what the Facebook, because I guess I never really post on Facebook. <laughs> Does anybody still use Facebook? <laughs> Question for any of our older audience, do you still use Facebook? <laughs> <laughs> our younger audience will be on TikTok soon. Maybe Maybe, about boomers. Maybe uh, JC JC could run our TikTok with some dance. That'd be, that'd oh be yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> JC, you need to you need to provide some like video content here. Show some entertainment around uh, dancing J- and movies. JC's all legs, man. Like TikTok's all about the arms. So apparently, I wouldn't know. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for being on the cast again, Nathan. Appreciate Thanks, your time, man appreciate your brain your brain is so full of good knowledge with films and we look forward to hearing more and more of that in the next episodes of legit cool podcasts and for the podcast my name is river villi bye everybody see you